and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love scary old-time radio stories. There's nothing quite like a disembodied voice telling a genuinely disturbing tale. But do these stories stand the test of time? Or are we being deceived by nostalgia? Are they suspenseful or forgettable? Bone-chilling or butt-numbing? That's what we're here to find out. Today, we continue our listener library series featuring suggestions from you, our mysterious listeners. Kira writes to us, I love your podcast, both the shows you feature and the discussions. I know I've already suggested an episode of Suspense, but I just got to share with you my favorite episode of Escape. How Love Came to Professor Gildia. Approaches supernatural elements in interesting ways, and I'd love to hear what you think of that episode. Escape was an anthology series that ran on CBS from July 7th, 1947 to September 25th, 1954. The show was designed to free you from the four walls of today for half an hour of high adventure, with stories focused on life-or-death situations, many of them adapted from classic literature. How Love Came to Professor Gildia is based on a short story by Robert Hitchens, first published in 1900. At the time, critics were less than kind, dismissing the story as a hideous bit of morbidity and, in a slightly more prosaic appraisal, trash. Today, it's held in much higher regard, often anthologized with other great ghost stories of the Victorian era. There is a parrot in this episode that is played by Paul Fries, known as the Man of a Thousand Voices. His resume of voice work is lengthy, but for us at least, the most notable of his work is being the voice of Boris Badenoff in Rocky and Bullwinkle and Burgermeister Meisterburger in the Rankin and Bass holiday classic Santa Claus is Coming to Town. And now, How Love Came to Professor Gildia from Escape, originally aired on February 22nd, 1948. Forget the petty distractions around you. Forget what you think you know. Forget everything but what you hear right now. It's late at night and a chill has set in. You're alone, and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker. Listen to the music. And listen to the voices. Worried about income tax? Wonder if spring will ever come? Want to get away from it all? We offer you escape. You were alone in your book-lined study, listening to the idiot gibberings of a parrot, and beside you... Caressing you is an invisible thing, a loathsome thing from which you must escape. Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson, and carefully contrived to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight we escape to the west end of London, to a little house just off Hyde Park, where lived a man who didn't like people. 
Tonight we escape in the remarkable tale of Robert Hitchens. Our love came to Professor Gildia. It has been said that no night ever passes over London town that sees not some strange and curious event. Some occurrence too incredible to bear repeating in the light of day. How horribly true are those words. It's been over a year now since the night I first met the amazing Professor Gildia. I had delivered a sermon at the rectory of St. Swithin in the East End and was passing through the foyer in departure when I was accosted brusquely by an odd little man, remarkably sharp-featured, his face adorned by a pointed black goatee. Pardon me a moment, please. I believe you're Father Murchison. Yes, that's right. But I don't think I've had the pleasure Perhaps of... Perhaps you've heard of me. My name's Gildia, Professor Gildia. Gildia, why, yes, you're the famous psychologist. Yes, yes, psychologist, biologist, anthropologist, philosopher, and that takes care of that. Sir, I never attend religious services. <laughs> it appears you've done so tonight. I came for one reason, to hear you. Find out why an otherwise normal colleague of mine thinks you're the most convincing speaker he's ever listened to. And did you find out? No. Your talk was intelligent, logical. Therefore, it could never convince anybody of anything. <laughs> Thank you. You're a direct man, Professor Gildia. No time to be anything else. I'd like to have you dine with me, Father Murchison. Say a week from tonight, 7 o'clock. I live at 100 Hyde Park in the West End. Uh, can't we make it two weeks? I'm preaching at St. Saviour's that night, just round the corner from the park. And I'm afraid it'll have to be nearer 8.30 than 7. The service isn't over so well. Uh, we can't even agree on a time for dinner. Very well, 8.30, two weeks. Uh, good night, sir. Perhaps if I had known then what a... But no matter. I kept the appointment, of course. And after an excellent dinner, we climbed the stairs to Gildia's study. A large book-lined room running the width of the house with windows at the end overlooking the park. In front of those windows stood the one incongruous thing in the room, a cage holding a large grey parrot. In fact, as I recall, it was the parrot that was responsible for my first becoming aware of what exact opposites Gildia and I really were. The same parrot that was responsible for so many other things that happened later. Quiet, Napoleon, quiet. One day that infernal squawking of yours will drive me to wring your neck. Somehow it surprises me, Gildia. I mean, you're keeping a pet. I possess a parrot, Father Murchison, that's all. Made a study of the imitative faculties of animals some months ago. Bought the bird then. Never got rid of it. I see. Started the bad habit of scratching the fool thing's head. Loves it, you see. <laughs> well, in five minutes he'll be screaming for more of it. Why would it surprise you so much if I kept a pet? Well, because I believe you're the most self-sufficient man I ever met. Uh, more than that, actually. I detest affection, any display of sentimentality. But you do feel the need of close human sympathy in your life. None whatsoever. A reasonable amount of companionship, naturally, but that's all. Mother Murchison, I'm one person who does not love his fellow men. Nonetheless, some of your discoveries have been of great benefit to mankind. Oh, entirely accidental. I thought you'd be liking your coffee now, sir. Oh, yes, Pitting. Put it there on the table, please. Thank you, sir. Will there be anything else, sir? No, that's all, Pitting. Yes, sir. An excellent servant there. 
I know nothing of Pitting's thoughts or feelings, nor he of mine. Perfect relationship. And if a crisis occurred, if you needed to call on him as a friend? <laughs> it would take a considerable crisis. But what about the parrot? Surely you must regard it with some affection, otherwise you'd get rid of it. Napoleon? Merely a specimen. The bird's as devoid of sentimentality as I am. Can only imitate whatever he sees and hears. Gildia, have you ever been in love? Neither with anyone in particular, nor with love itself. Being in love, as you put it, or having someone in love with me, would be the most monstrous and horrible situation I can possibly imagine. All of a sudden, I feel a very great sense of pity. For whom? For you. Yet as different as we were, my life dedicated to all humanity, Gildia's life stripped of its own humanity, I called again at the house at Hyde Park many times, and we became friends. We talked away many evening hours in the months that followed, sitting by the book-covered table in the long study, the grey parrot chattering away in the background, with the lamplight barely reaching the farther corners. It was on such a night not long ago that the thing began. Gildia had seemed uncommonly nervous since dinner and had spent much of the time pacing in front of the windows that faced the park. Confounded, Murchison, I, I can't seem to relax tonight. I uh, ever feel a completely unaccountable presentiment, uh, a sense that something remarkable was about to happen. Oh, yes, and usually it never did. Turned out to be the effect of too much coffee. No, it's not coffee. that. Coffee doesn't bother me, nothing does. Well, then suppose you stop pacing the floor and sit down. You're wearing me out. Wearing me out. <laughs> wearing me out. Have you noticed how well Napoleon's learned to imitate your voice? Yes, and it's almost insulting at times. Mm. The worst thing is feeling such a strong compulsion to do something which I know to be ridiculous. Exactly what is it you're talking about, Gildia? Uh, foolish even to mention it, uh, but I, I wonder if you'd pardon me for a few minutes. Uh, why, of course. Uh, help yourself to more coffee. I, I'll be right back. Bye. Goodbye. I walked over and stood stroking the feathers of the parrot through the bars of his cage. I'd grown rather fond of the ugly bird, but it always startled me to hear him mimic some phrase of mine or Gillia's. Napoleon. Napoleon. <laughs> You're a true creature of the devil. Creature devil. Creature devil. I happened to glance out the window toward the park across the street. The arc lamp at the corner threw a dim gleam across a bench set just inside the paling. And I was surprised to see Professor Gildia moving about the bench, peering under it, behind it, staring into the shadows nearby. He kept this up for some minutes, then crossed the street and came back toward the house. In a moment, I heard him ascending the stairs. Father Murchison. Has anyone entered this room since I went out? Why, no. You mean pitting, of course, but he hasn't been in. Oh, strange. I, Very uh, strange. I, I saw you across the street in the park. What were you doing? I thought I saw something. Wondered what it was, that's all. Did you find out? No. What's wrong with that parrot? Never made a sound like that before. What do you mean, he seems all right? Napoleon, stop that. What was it you thought you saw? Nothing. As you said, it most likely it was the coffee, only... I'm very much afraid that... No. In this day and age, it's... It's impossible.
It was nearly a week later that I received a phone call in my quarters at the rectory. Father Murchison here. This is Pitting, sir, Professor Gildy's man. Oh, yes, Pitting. How are you? Very well, thank you, sir. The master would greatly appreciate your calling at the house this evening, if it's convenient, sir. Oh, anything wrong? I couldn't say, sir. But why didn't he phone himself? He isn't ill. I think not. He suggested eight o'clock, sir. May I tell him you'll come? Yes. Yes, by all means. Tell him I'll be there at eight. beating about the bush, Father Murchison. I, I am nervous. Of course I am. Plenty of reason for it. You're working too hard. Now I'm working too hard. The other night it was coffee. As a matter of fact, it's neither one. <laughs> be, be quiet, Napoleon. Maybe you'd better tell me what is the matter, Gildia. Do, do you feel the presence in this room of anyone beside the two of us? <laughs> well, there's Napoleon, of course. No. No, I don't mean the parrot. He senses it too, though. Senses what? When you were here last week, I left the house for a few minutes, you remember? Yes. I'd been watching someone sitting on that bench across in the park, a shadowy sort of figure. I had to find out what it was. But you found nothing. You told me when you came back. That's right. But I'd left the front door open. And when I came back in, I felt suddenly that someone or something had entered ahead of me. Oh, now, really, Gildia. I knew also that they'd found their way to this room. But I was here all the time. No one came in. Father Murchison, whoever or whatever came into the house that night came into this room, is still here right now. You, Gildia. A scientist. Yes. Ridiculous, isn't it? But it's true. I I'm only able to feel its presence. Napoleon can see it. Look at him now. Wouldn't you say he was watching something over there in that far corner of the room? No, I'd say he was just being as foolish as a parrot usually is. You, a skeptic? About this, yes. You've been working too hard. You need a vacation. Ah, I haven't told you the worst part of it. Would you say that I'm an attractive man? Frankly, no. Oh, I suppose to a certain type of society woman? No, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. Well, then, what are you talking about? I don't know whether this intruder is a woman, man, child, animal, but whatever it is, it holds a vast affection for me. What? You imagine anything so so utterly monstrous, horrible? Murchison, the, the thing is in love with me. Love me! Love me! <laughs> I could not, would not accept Gildy's belief. And yet the alternative was even more frightful. For I could only decide that the long hours of study and lecturing had affected his mind and brought him, in fact, to the verge of insanity. I persuaded him finally to get away for a while, to leave the house and forget his professional problems, take a short trip. I accompanied him to Victoria Station, saw him off on the boat train and... Then, caught up in my duties, I had little time to consider the strange affair for nearly ten days. Uh, Father Murchison here. I hope I haven't disturbed you. Professor Gildia, then you're back in London. Oh, yes, I've been back for three days. You should have called me. How was the trip? Quite pleasant. I took passage on a channel coaster. Sea air was wonderful. You weren't troubled on the trip? Oh, no, not at all. Waited here for me. What? Then Would you... you come over here tonight? 
You mean now? Yes, if you could. You see, I, I can prove it to you now. Very well. I'll come right over. I stood there by the phone and shivered. The thing had become so real to him now that he felt he could go away and leave it, then come back and find it waiting for him. That's why I didn't call you when I first came back. I wanted to be sure. So I've waited three days, and every day has been worse than the one before. In what way? What do you mean? I mean the thing was waiting for me here. Glad I was back, formed all over me. Came more insistently obnoxious all the time. Do you mean you've seen this thing, heard it? No, no, I haven't seen it, haven't heard it, but I know it's here. I can feel it, sense it. Try to put it in words and it, it becomes absurd. If you'd like some unsolicited advice, call in a doctor, have him look you over. And what doctor in London knows any more about the human mind than I do? I know, but when it's your own no, mind... No, 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 you're thinking of hysteria, hallucination. I, I know all the symptoms. It's, it's not that simple... Anyway, I told you I'd prove it to you. Now, you'll notice I've thrown a cover over Napoleon's cage. Yes, I've been wondering about it. Part of my proof. He's been here, you know, all the time I was gone, here in this room. Yes, but I still... I want see. you to get behind those curtains with me. Then I'll reach out and pull the cloth off his cage. I, I don't want him to see us. I don't know what you're hoping to prove, but... All right, come on. Ready? I'll uncover him. We crouched there behind the curtains watching the parrot. He protested a while at being so rudely disturbed by some unseen agency, then climbed about the cage with claws and beak, pecked at crumbs and appeared entirely normal. After a time, he began to fix his attention on a spot across the room. There was nothing there. Watch him. Look at him now. In the parrot's mind, at least, someone or something was approaching the cage. And yet the room was empty. Whatever it was apparently had reached the cage now. And Napoleon welcomed it with friendly chortling. The hairs rose on the back of my neck. The bird was cooing and gurgling as it did when I, or Gildia, scratched the feathers on his head. I could almost fancy that I saw long, white, ghostly fingers reaching through the bars of the cage. Watch him. And listen to him. He's talking to the thing, imitating it. See what you think. The bird was moving about in the cage now, nodding his head in a very peculiar manner, uttering the most extraordinary sounds. I began to realize... He was imitating the thing he saw standing by his cage. And then the full horror of it came over me. I tried to hide the thought from Gildia, but he'd already seen it in my eyes. So you see it too. That's all I wanted to know, that I wasn't imagining it. No point in hiding there any longer. That was my proof. But perhaps someone was here while you were gone. I have questioned Pitting and the cook. No one has been here. But it can't be. Such a thing can't be. Father Murchison, it is. But where? Where is it now? Can you tell me where it is? Not exactly. Somewhere here in the room, not too far away. I can feel that. Napoleon, of course, can see it. There is some rational explanation. There has to be. You're whistling in the dark, Father. You recognize the same thing I did. I know what you mean, of course. Well, I can't stand much more of it. If it were only something I could fight, strike out at. I'm not a coward. 
but I can't see it, hear it. I can only feel it trying to touch me somehow, trying to get close to me, drooling with desire and affection, fondness for me. And I can't keep it away. It gets closer all the time. Gilder, you've got to get hold of yourself. Get hold of myself. You saw the way that parrot imitated this thing, those mannerisms, that gibberish. You know what it means as well as I do. I saw it, but it can't possibly... Can't you feel how hideous it is for me? I can't stop it. The thing makes love to me, caresses me. And whatever it is, it has no mind. You saw that. That thing is is a slobbering idiot. I walked home at a late hour, trying desperately to think of some reasonable answer to the whole strange affair. I could not accept Gildy's explanation of the actions of the parrot, though the bird had produced an extraordinary illusion of an invisible presence in that room. In a day gone by, perhaps I might have been called in to deal with an evil spirit. I thought of retribution. Gildia had always borne an unnatural distaste for human love. Was he now being forced to endure the unnatural love of a monstrous being as punishment? I cast such thoughts away from me. Yet I could not quite accept the only other reasonable solution. But my friend was insane. It was very late when I fell asleep. The following evening, I preached at Warwick Chapel and returned to my quarters about nine. I found that Pitting had called a short time before and left a rather puzzling message. Implore that you come to Hyde Park at once. Otherwise, I cannot answer for the consequences. But what is it you're trying to say, Pitting? He's not himself. In what way is he not himself? I can only suggest, sir, that you talk to him. Here we are. Yes, come in, come in. I'll leave you now, sir. Oh, Murchison, come in. Gildio, what did the name of heaven is wrong? Pitting said that you'd been upset, but he... an inhuman machine. What happened? What did he do? Nothing. But just it, nothing. But I, I don't know. Oh, you warned me about it once. Said I'd meet a crisis, need him as a friend, and he wouldn't be there. Well, it happened. Look here, I am going to call a doctor. I've never seen you in a state like no, this no, before. No, 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 I don't need a doctor. I'm all right now, for a little while anyway. At least I think I am. Then what was it? What happened? That thing touched me. Really touched me, I mean, for the first time. It, it's only been trying to before. The, the only way I can put it, it, it rubbed itself against my soul. Oh, it was horrible. Now, Gilia, you've got... Don't tell me to get hold of myself. I know what I'm saying. I, I'm sorry. But if, if you'd felt it for yourself, you'd know what I mean. It was disgusting, filthy. If it had lasted one more minute, I know I should have gone screaming mad. But you don't... You don't feel it now? No, 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 not now. I, I lost my head, I guess. I struck out with my fists. I tore at myself, screamed for help. Pitting came and thought I was drunk. But I, I could feel it touching me, sickening, soft and tender, inside of me. But it left you then. You forced it away. Yes, but it's still in this room somewhere. But it hasn't tried to touch me again. Well, that settles it. Gilia, you're leaving here tonight. It didn't follow, follow you when you took that trip before. It stayed here. 
That's one way you can be free of it. Then, you believe in the thing too. Believe it's real. It's real for you, and that's enough. Now, if I remember it, you're giving a lecture at Oxford the last of the week. You're going on up there now. I'll help you pack. Well, I could do that. I could stay at the Grosvenor tonight and take a train in the morning. It's right near the station. And it's all agreed. I'll... Wait, wait. Look at Napoleon. It's... It's standing there by his cage. He's talking to it, imitating it. Can you imagine what that thing must look like? Never mind. Let me help you start packing. But I didn't tell you what it really did this evening. What came the closest to driving me insane? It doesn't matter. The thing kissed me, Murchison. But not from the outside. What? I could feel it. Warm and wet. Kissing my lips. From the inside. Gillius stayed at the hotel that night. Caught the train out to Oxford the next morning. Four days later, I received a wire from him. I'm still feeling a bit shaky, but everything else is all right. No sign of any visitor. Why don't you try to come up for the lecture Friday night... And please get rid of Napoleon for me. Signed, Gildia. On sudden impulse, I decided to accept his invitation. My train was late and I arrived at Oxford with only time enough to go directly to the seminar. I slid into my seat just as Gildia was introduced and began his talk. He was pale and perhaps a bit drawn, but seemed otherwise composed and in control of himself. As I sat there, my mind wandered away from his talk, seeking some solution for the horrible problem which I regarded as being as much my own as Gildia's. I decided I would try to persuade him to sell the house in Hyde Park Place, since his strange fixations seemed to be bound up with it and try to find lodgings elsewhere. Some ten minutes passed when suddenly I noticed Gildia was becoming very nervous. He faltered in his talk. He, he seemed to be confused. He stood there on the platform, deathly pale, his hands out as though pushing something away from him. I, I knew what was wrong. Pardon me. Pardon me, please. Could I get through? Pardon me. Let me get to him, please. I'm his friend. Gilia. Gilia, can you hear me? Father Murchison? Yes. Everything's all right. It came here. Found me out. It rubbed up against me on the platform. It's no use. Take me back to London. We arrived back in London late the next afternoon. Gildia was a broken old man. He shivered continually, trembled as though shaken by a chill. He claimed to sense the awful presence of that thing always nearby us, accompanying us and he was constantly terror-stricken, lest it might try to touch him again. I stayed with him in the house in Hyde Park, and as night drew on, we sat in the long, book-filled study on the second floor. Pitting brought coffee to us, and then withdrew. We found little to talk about, 
and the silence of the room seemed doubly oppressive without the familiar chatter of the parrot in the background. What did you do with him, Murchison? Uh, Napoleon, I mean. I boarded him with a pet shop in Shaftesbury Avenue. I thought you might want him back again after you'd reconsidered. No. No, I won't want him back. You still can feel its presence, can't you? No, Gelia, I'm afraid I can't. I wish to heaven I couldn't. It's been here with us now, you know. Now, please. It doesn't matter. It's no use. I can't fight it any longer. There's no way to fight it. Perhaps that may be the answer, to stop fighting it. You said yourself that you felt it was fond of you, meant you no harm. Then why not stop fighting? Try to return its fondness, huh? its love, if you will. You don't know what you're asking. Even the thought of it sickens me. Fondness, love for that thing. Perhaps it may be the only way out. Then there's no way out. I tell you, Murchison, I've only one feeling for that creature, and that's hatred. Hatred. Disgust and hatred. Please, try to be calm. Wait. Wait. What is it? Perhaps that's it. Listen. Whatever you are, beast or devil, I hate you, do you hear? I hate you! Murchison, that's doing it. It's recoiling, withdrawing, I can feel it. Gildia, please. I hate you! I hate you! Murchison, it wants to leave. It's beginning to hate me, too, but it wants to leave now. Open the door, go downstairs and open the front door. Open the front door and let it out. All right, Gildia, if you'll feel better about it. It wants to take me along, but I know how to fight it now. Go, Murchison, hurry! I hate you! I hate you! I hate you! I, hate I ran you. down the stairs and threw open the front door. I stood there, breathing in the night air. It was clear and cold, and the stars hung overhead. I looked across to the park and saw the glow from the street lamp falling on the empty bench directly opposite. And at that moment came a sound that froze my blood with horror. I stood there, paralyzed, unable to move. Seconds passed, perhaps minutes, I don't know. I don't know how long I stood there. I glanced across at the empty bench, and for one moment thought I saw a shadow sitting on it, a vague shadow as Gildia saw it one night weeks before. And then the bench was empty, and I heard Pitting running down the stairs. Come quickly. Professor Gildia, he... It was his heart, I think. Yes. Yes, I believe it was his... Heart. But he's... Father Murchison, he's he's lying up there, sir. He's dead. Dead? Dead, Pitting? I hope so. I sincerely hope so. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson, and tonight brought you How Love Came to Professor Gildia by Robert Hitchens, adapted for radio by Les Crutchfield, with Louis Van Ruten as Professor Gildia, Parley Bear as Father Murchison, Harry Bartell as Pitting, and Paul Fries as the Parrot. Music is conceived and conducted by Cy Fuhrer. Next week... When you're tired out from doing nothing all weekend... When Blue Monday stares you in the face. Next week at this time, when your problems just seem too much for you, we offer you Escape. Next week, we bring you another exciting story of high adventure. 
Good night, then, until the same time next week when once again we offer you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. That was an episode of Escape and the episode Love Comes to Professor Gildia here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. And here we go. This was a listener request. This came to us from Kira, who has suggested before. Uh, Let's start with you, Mr. Scrimshaw. Have you ever heard this one before? The, yes, okay. but Escape is one of my all-time favorite radio shows, so I've heard a lot of those. Mm-hmm. I've also read the short story, and I'm quite fond of the ah, original. How true to the short story is this adaptation? It's really quite accurate. Um, they cut some things, but it's more trimming. All the big events happen. I would say the only fault of this story in the adaptation is interesting because it's an audio fault, and that comes down to the parrot. We talked about Paul Fries as the Paul parrot. Paul Fries, the man of a thousand voices. Yep, and I don't blame him. One of the most important things about the story is the sound that the parrot makes when it imitates the hideous voice of this thing. So interesting. Now, I don't know the original story, mm-hmm. of course, and that was one of my... Uh, I have an issue with something Mm -hmm. notes. I have good notes and things I love about this, but I wanted the parrot to be doing the language of the being. And I mean, I'm criticizing it, yet I don't know how you do it in audio form where you need to make it sound like a parrot, but you also need to convey that it is this sickly, demented being, but it just ends up sounding like a parrot. Yeah. Uh, you could have had, uh, for example, speaking in tongues kind of language, like maybe it was like a made-up language of sorts. No uh, offense, Pentecostals. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you could do... Uh, Just lost two listeners. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so interesting you bring that up because it was really the hook where I thought this could have sent this whole episode over the edge. Like, oh, that would have been creepy, the parrot doing exactly what the spirit was, how they were talking. Well, since you find it interesting, and it's kind of not fair to the episode because we're talking about the episode, not the story. But let me read a couple lines of description from the story about how this parrot sounds. Yeah. The parrot paused, listened, opened his beak, and again said something in the same dove-like, amorous voice, full of sickly suggestion, and yet hard, even dangerous, in its intonation. A loathsome voice, the father thought, mawkish and offensive. The sickliness of the voice, its falling intonations and its strange indelicacy, combined with a die-away softness and meretricious refinement, made the father's flesh creep. Okay. So obviously, there's a lot of language <laughs> there. Ah, <laughs> like See, that. you captured oh, it. Yeah, nice job, Jim. Thank you. Dead on. There's a lot here. First of all, uh, that was beautifully written. That's edited down. Let me tell a lot you. of time on the parrot Okay, voice. but let me tell you, we're talking about, oh, I don't know if it's fair. There's a number of ways they could have done this and conveyed that, but I'm going to tell you, it just occurred to me the easiest way. Why not just have the narrator say that segment from the short story? Mm. Then we would have had it in our own head. Right? Yeah. They yeah, just... certainly could have helped. They could have a little just bit of parent that. noise and then bleed into narration. Yes. Now, I feel like I'm being really hard on this because I really like it as an adaptation. And usually we kind of start with the nice stuff and then sneak <laughs> around and kick a show in the butt. Uh, here we started with some negative things, but I, I do think the only weakness of this adaptation is that it occasionally moves from creepy to silly. 
mm-hmm. and the parrot has that silly quality. There are a couple times when the professor is saying things like, it's a slobbering idiot. Yeah, some of the yeah. language sounds right. almost sitcom-like describing this ghost. And it's just a fine line from, from yeah. being ridiculous and really disconcerting. I <laughs> agree with you 100%. I, I wrote slobbering idiot down with a question mark. and like, oh, that's a weird description. <laughs> You're going to find that note again like in three years. I'm slobbering idiot in question. <laughs> <laughs> This this was so interesting to me. The themes and the the mm-hmm. weird notion of love as a monster. Yeah, there's a lot to delve into. There is a world in which you see this as a metaphor for repressed homosexuality. And there's a lot of people who see it that way. Robert Hitchens was gay. He was a good friend of Oscar Wilde, and he wrote a satire of Oscar Wilde that was published and what? then immediately withdrawn because it was part of the unfortunate outing of oh, the and, yeah. court. So yeah, there's a whole other <laughs> bit of history there too. So there are a lot of scholars who have looked at it from this repressed homosexuality angle, which is there, but yeah. I think you're kind of it's, forcing some aspects of it. Because there's also the interesting aspect of the, the man of science and the priest swapping roles mm-hmm. as far as do you believe this visible force? No, be reasonable. Well, once again, I don't have this information and background when I sit down and listen to it. Not a, I've never heard this episode. I've never heard of this story. I've never heard of Hitchens. I've never read this thing. I have no, nothing to base this on other than I, I hit play and I listen. So my perspective on it is different than your guys. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when we do these podcasts, that you know a lot of writers and you have a lot of literature background and historical context and connections, and I'm just hearing them. So none of this occurred to me in any of these themes or any of the, you know, like <laughs> what's going on. I will tell you this. Overall, I really loved the story of them seeing someone sitting on a bench outside and then it gets let in the house and they can't see it, but the parrot can. The recognition, uh, not by a dog for a change, but by a parrot <laughs> that can parrot, if you'll forgive me, what the spirit is saying is a really cool concept. Yeah. And so I loved that story. I will also say the one philosophical thing that did occur to me was uh, the idea that, you know, he is a, not a very happy person that can't find love. And he's being kissed. More than, more than can't find it, he's, he pushes he's, it away. Right. And he's being kissed from the inside. He describes really being weird. kissed from the inside of his lips and stuff. And uh, I got to the end and I thought, there's a possibility there is no spirit, that this is just his inner being of fighting to come out. I need love. you know. And mm-hmm. is, yeah, um, well, that's uh, the parrot says, like, need love. Right. So uh, I kind of left with the idea that there was really no spirit, that this whole thing was just this man's personal demons. You can see it both ways, and I like a story like that. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. there is... Nothing you have to ignore either way, however you want to see if it's a real ghost that's haunting him or it's all in his head. Speaking of reversals, you have a ghost that is loving, <laughs> yes. not a haunting. Just that, that idea alone makes this for me. Unrequested love as right. a form of torture. We are being haunted by idiot love. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like an 80s song. <laughs> I also really liked the the parrot both as a, a plot function and theme. Even just the plain theme of wrestling with your emotions about how much people and parrots, I guess, <laughs> just repeat back what they hear. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and just try to... Uh... Imitate. Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. I liked the very simple idea that there's a lot of ghost stories where the animals know something bad is about to happen. In this case, the animal can tell us. 
<laughs> the animal can talk to us in the sense that ah, uh, it's right here, and this is what it's saying. <laughs> you know, that's it's like a proto version of a tape recorder. And the- <laughs> right, but what if your dog? You know, because now and then our dogs do weird things in our house and they'll all go to the same corner and start sniffing around and looking up in the air and it makes us crazy like because you know they have senses that we don't right. and it immediately sets Just, your hackles up if they could turn around and say yeah that's a ghost <laughs> that becomes more terrifying um my first note of this whole thing was uh, apparently uh, asking a, a complete stranger out on a dinner date was a lot easier back then because <laughs> uh, I don't know why he would say uh, no to this perfect stranger who was so engaging and nice and humble. <laughs> <laughs> he just comes up and screaming at him and oh. is just such a cantankerous. And then he says, we're going to have dinner. Oh, and he says, yes. <laughs> and he goes over there. Apparently, they were just desperate for a dinner date. Well, that's also the job of a father. You Both. need to reach out and to yeah, anyone who's come to you. Priests can have like a. I'm pretty busy. <laughs> I'm sure there are. Come to church, we are, jerk. We are. We're supposed to believe that this guy. You know, again, talking about these opposites, that he believes in this compassion and human right. love and the power of that to heal and care for one another. I mean, part of what I love about this story too, even before the ghost shows up, is I. Find the idea of great friendships between opposites just terribly romantic. I have a note here that I was going to make a joke mm-hmm. that was, uh, at, at this point, I was really hoping that the, the guy and the father were going to fall in love. <laughs> but now I'm like, oh, maybe well, that was intentional. On my first listen through, when they start with the scene of an introduction, I was thinking that so many stories that are the story of Dr. What's-His-Face being mm-hmm. told by some other person is really about that narrator and Dr. What's-His-Face's relationship. Right. More so than just, it's me telling you about my friend. It's about the two of them. Mm-hmm. And that wound up being incredibly true, I think, in this case, that it's very much other little telltales of, like, when he left town, the love creature did not go, but it was waiting for him like the father was. Mm-hmm. And at the lecture, it was when the father showed up that the love showed up again. Mm-hmm. That is a change from the story. The father does ah. not go to see the lecture. Oh. And partly for audio, is that because he's narrating an audio, so they want him there to narrate the events, which makes perfect sense. A production note uh, about him being at the lecture. Uh, it was really beautifully engineered. Yes. Uh, his uh, narration over the lecture how it was written and how it was produced was really nice, beautiful. You could hear him slowing down as he was narrating and freaking out. I thought that was just a really great piece of radio drama. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just wanted to make sure I get this out there. I know that, you know, we're talking about the writing of the parrot being able to convey what the spirit's saying, but Paul Fries does a heck of a parrot. That is yeah. a really good <laughs> parrot. That's really, really, it that sounded like a, a parrot. Where if someone did that badly, it would tank. tank this. Yes. Yeah. You're right. Right. It would be terrible. It would be so distracting. <laughs> parrot. Yeah. The man of a thousand voices and one parrot. <laughs> it's good. Uh, let me ask you this, because you said this uh, earlier, that you really love the ending, the, the ambiguousness mm-hmm. of it, right? Mm-hmm. We're not sure what it is this tends to bug me and we've talked about this before where why don't you just tell me why don't why as a writer don't you just tell me and i realize i'm not an idiot that there's a lot of storytelling where that is the intent you don't get to know or to make you think or to open up discussion or who knows we don't get to know all the answers and that's fine but it tends to bug me well it's interesting because here we have ambivalence over was it really a spirit or was it all in his head but to sort of make up for that ambivalence thematically 
There's no ambivalence. They just come down really hard. It was his heart. He died from lack of love, right? So the, they're saying the theme pretty strongly. Okay. So you do have a conclusive something at the end. He does see the spirit on the bench, though, too. Yes. He sees a glimpse of something for a moment. Right. But- and then he lo- then there's a scream, which is a nice moment that yeah. distracts his attention. He looks back, and it's gone. Cause, right. And so do you think, oh, it's gone because it went back up and it killed the professor? Mm-hmm. Or was he just hallucinating the whole time and the professor did just freak out and die so that part of it i I enjoyed and i think if you didn't have some ambivalence in the narrative that heavy-handedness with the theme might come off as too much i think there's also in if you were going to be writing a gay subtext in the 1900s you might want a nice cover story to create some ambivalence all right let's vote on this let's what's our final uh what do we secret ballot secret ballot (laughs) i really like it i think it does have a few faults but again I don't know if it's because I have read and admire the story, but I think they really worked hard to adapt this well to audio, and if some things didn't work, Mm -hmm. it might just be a weakness of the medium in translating this story. Maybe not. I could be wrong. I did discover in some research that uh, NBC Radio City Playhouse has an adaptation of this that I've never heard, so it would be really interesting to hear a totally different version of it, and that might help inform my opinion of it. But overall, I'm going to say this is a very intriguing story that stands the test of time. If there's any weakness in it, it was something that a listener in 1940-whatever might have found weak about it, too. So uh, if we're still interested in it, and we can still have this much of a discussion about it, I would say it definitely stands the test of time. Yeah, I will say, honestly, word for word, just what you said. <laughs> that is, everything you just said is exactly how I feel about it. It really jumps out uh, as a more sophisticated, interesting script than sort of its brethren of the time. I really like it, and I agree with what you guys said. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much again to Kira for suggesting Thank this you, in our uh, summer request series and let's uh, talk a little bit about the website mr yuren please go to ghoulishdelights.com there you will find not only other episodes of this podcast because we've done a bunch and they're fun um (laughs) but you will also find information about live shows because we do live shows you can find us at the minnesota fringe festival this summer and information is available at ghoulishdelights.com Yes, and you could also go to iTunes and do us a big favor and write a review of the podcast. Tell us what you think, why you like it, why you have some concerns for us, anything like that. Uh, Just express some thoughts at us. Thank you. Next week, it's Joshua's turn. He's going to be doing a listener request for us. Yes, it's from NBC Radio Playhouse, which I mentioned earlier in the podcast, but uh, the episode we'll be listening to is The Wardrobe Trunk. Until then... Would you say that I'm an attractive man? Frankly, no.